What gives meaning to our lives? There is a tendency to put a higher value on the length of life over the substance of one's life. Should that be how Christians view life? Hi, I'm Fanny Osibin, a preacher for the Church of Christ. In today's sermon, Life, taken from 2 Peter 1, we will contemplate what's essential for Christians to focus on while they live. Hopefully, as we work through this sermon, you will consider your life and how it aligns with God's intentions for you in Christ Jesus. There's a debate on to whether we should open up the economy or keep quarantining. And there's opinions on both sides of the matter. And while I don't want to put a dog in the fight, a pony in the race, what the question gets to is, what is more important, maintaining life or fulfilling the purpose or finding meaning in the life that you have? And what brings all of this to a head is a person's understanding of how they view death. You see, the world has stopped because there is now supposedly a new way to die, and it has caused us all to operate differently because we have a desire to prolong the life that we have. And we don't want to take life for granted. And in thinking through all of this, we're realizing, recognizing what the meaning of life is on an individual basis. But this thought process has already been thought through by Christians, and when we thought through it, we confronted it at our baptism when we put our faith into action and submitted our lives to Christ. So we don't always need to teach about the importance, the meaning of life. Sometimes we just need a reminder of our Christian calling. You see, this is the situation that Peter was in when he wrote 2 Peter before his impending death. He was imprisoned in Rome, facing a certain death for being a Christian, and he wanted to remind his fellow brothers and sisters what was essential for Christians to do with the life that they had. I'm going to read the second chapter of that, that epistle. And in it, we will find our sermon's message. We're not going to utilize the whole chapter for our sermon, but I think it's good to hear what Peter was saying. I'm sorry. I, I want the first chapter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things, his precious and very great 
promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love for if these things are yours and you are increasing among you they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ for anyone who lacks these things is nearsighted and blind and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins therefore brothers and sisters be all the more eager to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you, I think it right as long as I am in this body to refresh your memory since I know that my death will come soon as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will, but man and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, like I said, there's a lot in this chapter that could be discussed. But what we really want to focus on is what we must do to take advantage of the entrance into the eternal kingdom that Jesus Christ has provided for us. So that we can take the steps necessary to maintain, fulfill the purpose of our Christian life, our Christian calling. And it's important to understand this because what he points out is that salvation is not unconditional. It's not a once saved, always saved. It's a once you have come into salvation, one must live a life worthy of it. So it makes you question. 
the importance of life and the importance of the efforts that I put forth to maintaining the life that I have provided for me. It's not just a matter of I evade and stay away from everything so that I can just live. It's I have to do something that gives credence to the meaning of this Christianity that was bestowed upon me. Because we see that we can't just say that once I have entered into the salvation that it's mine forever. As chapter 2 points out, he gives examples of beings, of people, of, of situations to where there was some type of salvation provided and lost. Angels in heaven, some of them lost out on heaven. He talks about before the flood, the world that was with Noah and all of the forefathers of Abraham, Adam, Seth, Enoch, Mahalia, the world at that time, it was washed away. When we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was destroyed. And all of these cases exemplify two things. One, God has the ability to save righteous people, righteous beings. And two, God will condemn, destroy those things that are against his will. You see, there was people who lived worthy of the salvation that God provided in Lot, in Noah. And there was the world which lived under the condemnation of God because they did not live out life to its true meaning. They did not fulfill its purpose. So God destroyed them and the world that they lived in. You see, Noah and Lot were different from everybody around them. And that says something, because that's not an easy thing to do, to stand out in the crowd when everybody around you is going wrong and you're doing right by God. You see, what separated Noah, Lot, is that they weren't focused on the present life. They weren't focused on their situation as it was at hand. They were focusing on fulfilling God's intention for their lives. And Jesus uses these two people in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 to highlight that people who are just focused on this world, this present day and age, that they will be caught up in the condemnation, the wrath of God because it'll catch them off guard. People were eating, drinking, giving away in marriage when the flood came, when Sodom and Gomorrah was burnt. And the ones that were saved were the ones who recognized that you can eat and you can drink and you can give away in marriage, but there's something more valuable which is other than right now, which is focused on what God is calling us to. And so they didn't let the present day and age cause them to lose focus on being who God wanted them to be. They functioned with a deeper understanding of life. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're 
called to function understanding that there's something much more important than just the normal everyday today activity. That God has given us a calling in our Christianity that's supposed to guide our thoughts and our actions and we're to exemplify to the world around us what it truly means to have life. And in doing such, we grow. Peter recognizes this and Peter writes and he tells them that growth is necessary for Christians. Because if we don't grow, we're ineffective, we're unfruitful, and our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ has no bearing on our lives. You see, as Peter is getting to the transition from this life to the next, he sees what's really important, a perspective that's brought about through Jesus and clarified by this impending death. You see, when you get to the end of something, you start to see what it's really worth. You start to recognize what's really important as you get closer and closer to being with Christ. And Jesus had told Peter that when you get older, people are going to carry you where you don't want to go. And now that time had come and Peter was seeing that the words of Christ were being manifested in life to his death and the promise that he was going to get was going to be fulfilled because everything else Jesus had said had came true. So Peter saw that there was a preeminence on valuing obedience to Christ above comforts in this world. There was something necessary that most people don't recognize in being a Christian and growing in it, even in the face of persecution that Peter deemed relevant to leave behind before he left this world so that those who shared with him in the eternal promise could keep with them even after he was gone. You see, while we're not going to be martyred like Peter, people have put some undue blame upon Christians because of the desire to congregate, to meet during this pandemic. And just like the fire that raged in Rome under Nero in 64 that Christians were blamed for. Some Christians' churches have been blamed for fanning aflame this virus. And our society has accused us of doing harm and has put Christians in a place to look at their Christianity, to evaluate their faith and to see do they really believe in the God who has called them and there's pressures from the outside world to acculturate and fit in so that we won't be ostracized and viewed as different 
which puts Christians in danger of losing their salvation. But it doesn't have to be so because at this time to where we're evaluating faith, what we could also do is look at ourselves and we can evaluate, see which direction we're going in. Are we going closer to God or closer to the world? And Peter gives us a rubric in which to analyze our progression through. You see, it starts with faith and it ends with love. I'm going to read 1 Peter, the end of chapter 4 through 8, so that you can see what I'm saying. 1 Peter 1, end of 4. So that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust, and you may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, some Bibles say virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, or some say steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection or brotherly affection, and mutual affection with love. You see how it goes from faith to love, and that's a good way that we can see if we're growing as Christians, if as we grow in this faith, we get to this love that God would have us to be at. But what we first must recognize is that means that we cannot take our natural thinking, our worldly desires along in this process. It's because of those things that the world is going to be condemned. You see, when we were baptized, we repented of that life of sin, and our walk with Christ causes us to continually measure up our thoughts against Christ. And when we see that we're looking at life differently than God would have us to, that means we have to repent. We have to continually mold ourselves into the image of Christ. Because if not, we will succumb to our worldly desires. We will live to the standard of everybody else in this world. And we'll face the condemnation of this earth. So the first one, faith. Last week we looked at Hebrews 11. And one thing that's very evident when it comes to faith is one it takes a lot of effort to follow to trust in what God says but to do such we must know it we must understand it we must be acquainted with it and faith is not something that you could just have without any relation, without any knowledge to what God wants, you must recognize what it is that God has said for us to do. And when you recognize it, you must do it. Causing us 
to step outside of our own understanding to take God's. So you think about Noah. It had never rained on the earth. But God says, build an ark. God says, this is how you're to build it. And so he builds it. Trusting that when it's done, that God is actually going to do what God said. You think about Abraham. Go. I'm going to give you a home. I have an inheritance for you that you must leave to go get. And he goes and he does it. And all of the others in the Bible who demonstrated faith, they had to put forth effort amongst the rest of the world who was doing something different and trust in what God said as opposed to what they saw. And that's the first step. We first must demonstrate faith if we are to grow as Christians and take a step closer to entering into that eternal kingdom that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is richly providing us. But when we walk in faith, we must also have virtue. Virtue, moral excellence, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And if you want a good example of somebody who is virtuous, look at Joseph. He was sold into slavery into Egypt as a little boy, but yet he still maintained his faith to God. But in doing such, he did what was right no matter what situation he was in. So as the head of Potiphar's household, he acted with wisdom. He didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, even though she threw herself at him. As a head in the jail, he acted with wisdom. He didn't complain and didn't try to retaliate, get revenge because of the situation he was in. He just did what was right at the right time because it was the right thing to do and God rewarded him. He lived with virtue. But when you have this faith and when you have this virtue, what you must also add to it is knowledge. And I'm not talking about just a, a, a surface knowledge. I'm talking about a knowledge like the Bereans had. They searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul said was true. Because people can come with a good message and it's, it's nice and it's what you want to hear, but that doesn't make it true. And so if we want to be who God is calling us to be, if who Peter is, is recommending that these Christians do in Asia Minor, that they pursue to, to inherit this earthly, this heavenly kingdom, we must instill ourselves with godly knowledge so that we will be assured of all things that God wants us to know, to be who God wants us to be. And that takes time, effort, and energy studying God's will so we'll know it for ourselves and won't have to depend on anybody 
telling us. And also being able to correct error when we're confronted with it. And when we have faith, when we have virtue, when we have knowledge, it's going to take self-control. You know why? Because when you have all of that, you might become prideful. But when you have self-control, you will be able to not allow circumstances in your life to get you off who God is calling you to be. You will allow yourself to stay humble, to stay meek, so that God can use you. And the perfect example is Jesus, who was God and came in the form of man and functioned with faith, controlling himself, even so to the point to where when he was headed to the cross, John and James said, do you want us to call down some angels? And Jesus said, no, you do not know what you're saying. When he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he said, I'm not going to allow you to tempt me because I have control over myself. And I'm going to wait and I'm going to do what God wants me to do because I can manage my emotions, my feelings, no matter what's going on around me. And even in confrontation with rebellious, stiff-necked Pharisees, he didn't allow himself to get out of character. Self-control. And on the flip side of that is steadfastness. A good example is Job. No matter what was going on, he didn't lose faith. Lost everything except for his faith. Think about that. He lost all of his possessions in this world, even his health, but he kept his faith. He was faithful to God no matter what he went through. And that's necessary for us as Christians to grow so that we can enter into this eternal kingdom. Godliness, devotion to mirroring oneself, making your life after the pattern of God's. Paul, think of him. How he went from being Saul of Tarsus, the Christian slayer, to being Paul, the apostle, the Christian maker, church establisher, and being so devoted to God that he endured whatever it was, took up what was lacking in the persecutions of Christ so that he could help others in faith, so that he could teach others Christ and exemplified it in numerous writings. He said, remember the example that I had before you. Practice that. Do that. 
because I was exemplifying following Christ so that you could follow me as I follow Christ and we would be with Christ in eternity together when he returns. And when you start thinking like that, what you will really start demonstrating is brotherly affection. You see, Paul didn't look to people he only knew. He looked to everybody. He was like the good Samaritan. Who needs help? What did Jesus say? Who is your neighbor? The person that needs help. The person in front of you. Brotherly affection is looking at all humankind, all men, and willing to treat them as your brother. Because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to look past those whom we might have familiar relationship with, those whom we might be in the same community to, those whom we have some type of worldly standard that connects us, and see it as God sees it, that all people were made in God's image, and we are all heirs of the same promise in Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to treat each other as such and be willing to lend a hand be willing to spread the gospel. Be willing to do what puts others in the same, if not better, position than us because of our faith in the Lord. And once you're demonstrating that brotherly love, once that goodliness, godliness is really being exemplified by you, once that steadfastness, faithfulness to God is, is, is grasped, that self-control is managed, your knowledge is growing, your virtue is being shown to all men, your faith is rooted and established, he ends it with love. And the best way that I could describe love is the way in which Paul did it. We're familiar with the passage. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You see, when we start with faith and we couple it with all of these other things, these attributes that Peter is telling these Christians to add to their faith, ending in love, we will fully be mature in Christ. And now is the perfect time to self-reflect because the world has come to a pause. We've slowed down in life. We're starting to realize what is most important. And we can analyze ourselves to help ourselves improve to be who God is calling us to be.
You see, this is all stuff that we already possess to some measure. But also things that we can grow in. Attributes that we can increase about ourselves. Because if we don't, what will happen is we'll become ineffective. We'll be unfruitful. And we risk missing out on entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we think about this list of characteristics that Paul is telling these Christians to work on, we have to recognize that our Christianity is an intentional endeavor. It's not something that we're going to grow in in without putting forth the effort to. If we say we have faith, it necessitates we demonstrate it. It necessitates that we grow, not just in the things that we're comfortable with, but in the things that God demands we grow in. And that calls evaluating ourselves. And Scripture provides excellent resources. This is one place to look at ourselves and to see, do we measure up? To see if we're molding ourselves the admonition that we find that God saw fit to leave behind through holy men, through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, so that we, who are called to be holy, will be with him eternally when he returns. So it takes knowing scripture, being intentional about applying scripture, And now at this time in this world where everybody, not just the elderly, not just those who are in impoverished or bad life situations to where death is ever present, everybody in the world has this this danger of doom, this death, of this cloud of death almost ever present around them, be it real or be it manufactured by the media it's on our minds and being that it's on our minds it helps us to think what is the purpose of this life why am I really a Christian and since I believe that what am I really going to do about it because death helps to clarify the importance of life and what's really meaningful. You see, the people who lost out on the salvation that was afforded to a lot, that was afforded to a Noah, they were living their lives day to day. They didn't have no thought of the coming judgment of the death that was coming that was just like that. And when it comes, it's too late. But you see, especially in the case of Noah, God had warned him because he was righteous that this is coming. That you must do this because judgment is at hand. 
with Lot. The angels, the messengers from God, came down to Lot's house. Lot saw them sitting in the center of the, the city, and he besought them to come stay with him. And they were going to destroy that city, and he told them, destruction is coming. Get your family together, and let's leave. And his sons-in-law, they thought he was playing, and they died. His wife, didn't take that warning serious and was told not to turn around, look back, and she turned into a pillar of salt and she died. But death, the warning given to Lot, given to Noah, helped them to focus on what's really important and what that was, was escaping the condemnation that the world was in that they received because they just took life for granted. And as they were living, eating, drinking, and giving each other away in marriage, God's judgment came and they missed out on salvation. And so, as we contemplate the condemnation that comes with a life lived in opposition to God's will, we recognize what God's calling us to. So we don't get caught up like the rest of the world. So that means we can't take this knowledge for granted. And at times we need reminders because it's not like I told you anything new. It's just that I brought it to the forefront of your mind. It's stuff we all already believe. And it just refreshes, it solidifies, and at some level it deepens the knowledge of what we know with the intention of us growing as a Christian. Just like Paul said, I'm not telling you anything new. I just want to remind you because I know my death is coming. And when I do pass, I want the message that I give you to be so fresh in your mind that it compels you to continue living out this Christian calling so that when Jesus comes and brings us all back to his eternal abode, our time spent together would have been meaningful to what was really important about this life. The message is yours. I pray that we continue to grow in our Christian calling and that we analyze our lives from time to time and see where it is that we can work on. And we trust in God through the process. And that we give the struggles to God because he really will help us. And that the relationships that we establish with each other will be continued in the next life. I'm not sure where that sermon leaves you. My prayer is that you will contemplate it and incorporate it into your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, I ask, what's stopping you? 
God sent his son, Jesus, to freely extend the gift of salvation to all who will follow him. To get that salvation, one must follow the example set out in scripture. The book of Acts, which details the church's beginnings and expansion, shows us biblical examples of those who were saved. A good place to look is in Acts 2. You get Peter preaching the first gospel sermon and the response of those who heard and believed his message. They repented and were baptized, which added them to the church Christ established. The Bible only teaches of one church. If you want to be added to it, go to your local church of Christ and tell them your desire to be washed of your sins and to live a godly life. Study your Bible, put its teachings to practice, and you will make heaven your home.